Hello, this is James Ippolitti, host of Out of Silence. I wanted to jump in just to let you know that you may hear that it is the Songsmith Podcast or Creativity Gurus Podcast. Season one of both of those have been combined to the name Out of Silence, and that will be the name moving forward for any interviews that I have about creativity. So don't be confused. Songsmith Podcast and the Creativity Gurus is now under one brand, Out of Silence. Peace. Greetings, Hepcats. Welcome to the latest edition of the Creativity Guru. I am your host, James Ippolitti. In this episode, I open up the podcast vault once again to reveal my 2008 conversation with Crispin Glover. Glover is best known for portraying eccentric characters on screen, most notably as George McFly in Back to the Future, and my favorite, Lane in River's Edge. Crispin Glover was my first big-name interview, and he was generous with his time during a time when most people did not know what a podcast was. You're also going to hear another voice, a co-host named Doug Lipsky. I had some co-hosts back then because, to be honest, I was nervous to do interviews alone. Crispin Glover discusses his work on his IT trilogy, as well as other moments in his career. Each week, I speak with artists of all mediums, asking them about their creative journey with the hope that you may glean something from our conversations to help you on your own journey so that you may live your creative dreams. So if you would like to support this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you subscribe so you're notified when I post new episodes. And being a newer podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would give this podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And now let's jump right into my 2008 conversation with Crispin Glover. Hello, this is Crispin. Hey. Hello. <laughs> I uh, I had mixed up the, the time. I thought it was... Uh, uh, Pacific time, but I'm glad to be on your show. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and I'm glad that you're here. Yeah, My, uh, I'm James, and with me is Doug. How hello, you doing? hello, hello. So what we were playing just then was the excerpt that you sent me from Rat Catching. That's right. And this is something that you do with the tour of your films. You do the big slideshow. Correct. It's a it's a one hour uh, live dramatic narration of eight different books that I've made over the years. And uh, uh, I, I've been doing this live performance since 1993, uh, and uh, it, it's uh, something people, I'm trying to talk about it a bit more when I'm promoting the shows, because I, uh, uh, people often don't realize that along with showing the feature film, I also uh, do this one-hour live dramatic narration of these eight different books. Uh, b- before the show and before the film, and then after the film, I have a question and answer which lasts almost an hour, and then after that, I uh, I have a book signing. So it's a, it's a very long evening, but uh, uh, quite enjoyable uh, for all. <laughs> well, that's, you know what? I want to talk about what is it, and everything is fine. But first, can you tell us an overall vision of what you have for the It trilogy? What's the connecting theme through these? Like, what will it be through the three films? Well, uh, I, I purposefully don't talk about the the third part of the film uh, uh, until that film is completed, which is going to be a long time from now. Uh, but parts one and two. Uh, they, 
they they have connections in 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 different ways. Uh, the way I usually um, the way I usually uh, go about talking about it is is in this way. First, I talk about part one, and then I I talk about part two. Uh, part one uh, was um, originally going to be a short film. But I'll, I'll kind of, uh, I'll have to talk about part three, what's going to be part three before I talk about part one. Okay. Um, part three, uh, well, what, how the whole thing originated was in 1996, two young writers from Arizona, uh, contacted me and they, uh, they let me know that, uh, they were interested in having me act in this, uh, Film that they had they had written uh, by by contacting my agent with a film offer. Now they actually shouldn't have done that because they they didn't really have any money. Uh, but it did it did get me to read their screenplay, and uh, there were things in the screenplay that I I, I liked and I felt like they worked, uh, but there were things that that didn't. And it was right at, right around this time that I felt the next. Uh, uh, corporately funded and distributed film that I would um, uh, act in with the first time uh, filmmaker would be myself. Now I was thinking about this specifically because I had uh, money that, that I thought they had money to make the film. Uh, I said to them I'd be interested in acting in the film if I could rework the screenplay and uh, and direct it, and that I w- uh, had certain concepts that I wanted to to rework. Now they 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 were fine with this. Uh, uh, well, they they wanted to come out and meet with me and talk to me about that. So I I did, and um, the main thing that I wanted to have happen in this, or there were a lot of different concepts and. Uh, elements that I wanted to change, but the main thing was I wanted most of the characters to be played by actors with Down syndrome. They were fine with that idea, and then David Lynch, uh, uh, well, I set about to rewriting the screenplay and reworking it, and uh, then David Lynch uh, agreed to executive produce that film for me to direct, which was a very helpful thing. And so I went to one of the larger corporations in uh, Los Angeles that funds smaller uh, films, uh, so-called independent films, and uh, they said that they were um, interested, but after a number of meetings and conversations, it became apparent that they uh, were concerned about funding a film where a majority of the characters were played by actors with Down syndrome. So it was decided that I should write a short film to promote this as being a viable idea. Because everything I've been talking about so far is not what is it. What that film eventually will be, what that screenplay became, was a screenplay called It Is Mine, and that will be part three of the trilogy. But I I wrote out this short film, which I called What Is It?, and I decided that to promote this as being a viable concept, I'd have all of the characters be played by uh, the actors with Down syndrome. And... uh, because I, I just I just wanted to get a, across that this was a viable and, and interesting concept, and that there were 
there were uh, uh, elements to be had that would would make sense to uh, to corporately finance. Well, I I when I wrote when I when I shot that initial film in three days, it or I'm sorry, we shot it in four days, and then I edited it over a period of about six months, and that came in at about 83 minutes. And it was too mm-hmm. long for the the concept the concept of what I had at the time the um, amount of information I had, and I realized with more work and putting more elements in it that I could make it into a feature film. And I uh, over a period of about two and a half to three years shot and uh, reworked and edited more more film into it and then locked the film. Uh, Now, one of the things that I did during this time was when I realized that the film had been um, had been was was going to turn into a feature. uh, It it became apparent that I had read a screenplay in 1987 that I had always wanted to make into a feature film. As soon as I'd read it, it had been it had been written by a man named Stephen C. Stewart who had a severe case of cerebral palsy, and it it was written in a genre style like a 1970s television murder mo- mystery movie of the week, where he was the bad guy, and he'd been locked in a nursing home for about ten years when his mother died when he was in his early twenties because he was very difficult to understand, but the, he'd written this screenplay in a very specific fashion. And it had an emotional truth to it that was uh, extremely compelling. Well, I realized that there were certain thematic elements that uh, had something in common with, with, with what is it. Another thing that I had also simultaneously realized was that the concept of having a majority of the characters being played by actors with Down syndrome uh, really was a, ta- a taboo concept, and 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 what it, what is very specifically taboo is not that the characters that they're playing have Down syndrome, but it's the fact that they don't have Down syndrome. What is it is not a film about Down syndrome. It's uh, it really is my uh, psychological reaction to the restraints that have happened. Uh, within the corporate filmmaking within the last 20 and 30, 30 years or in anything that can possibly make a, 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 an audience member uncomfortable is necessarily excised or that film will not be corporately funded or distributed. And it was because I realized that this this concept of having a majority of the characters uh, being played by uh, actors with Down syndrome wherein those characters do not necessarily have Down syndrome that that itself is a, a, a taboo concept, and that was what the, the corporate entity that I had gone to had become uh, quite concerned about. And I realized that anything that could possibly be considered uh, a taboo, that could possibly genuinely make audiences truly uncomfortable, would necessarily be excised, or that film would not be corporately funded or distributed. And that, that to me, is a very bad thing, because it's that moment when... Uh, uh, an audience member sits back in their chair, looks up at the screen, thinks to themselves, is this right what I'm watching? Is this wrong what I'm watching? Should I be here? Should the filmmaker have done this? What is it? And uh, that's the title of the film, part one. 
what is it? Part two is, it is fine, everything is fine, and part three will be, it is mine. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, when a director makes a film, it's, it's hard to divorce that director's point of view from their art. But what you have been trying to do is to not dictate to the people, the audience, uh, what they're supposed to get out of these films. So how, how do you balance that? How do you keep... This is, uh, this is very true. I, uh, now, because I had a, uh, a misunderstanding of the time, I need to make one telephone call to let somebody know something. I know we're on the air. I apologize. No, that's Can fine. You, let me just uh, hold on, and I will, I, will, I will call immediately back. That's no problem. Okay, th- thanks. I apologize. <laughs> okay, bye. Okay. I'll be right back. Bye. Sure. Okay. Okay. We'll take a little break. <laughs> well, this is fascinating. This, uh, yeah, uh, he's great. He's great. It's, uh... Well, he's true. What he's, what he's talking about is that films, if they have any type of taboo, and uh, the, the studios, and I want to find, and there's a lot of questions I want to get into about that, but studios won't finance or fund or distribute something that might be somewhat taboo, and they want to point to a movie and make it, that this is what we say is good, and this right. is what we say is evil, and there is no gray area. Right. And what his film's trying to do is show these things, and inside the audience member, create a, a kind of like a, um, an internal dialogue that you have to have. Yeah. That you're, you're and, watching it, and you're asking yourself, like you said, what, what am I doing here? And is this right? Should I be watching this? And you're, ha- you're, you're engaged with the film at that point. And uh, it's, there are films, if you think about some that that I've seen. Uh, there's one that one called Kids. Remember Kids? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh-huh. And that's Absolutely. a controversial film, but it's one that you watch it and you're like, oh man, this is. It you know if you're uncomfortable, it's it's usually a good film. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's doing its job. I mean, whether you like the film or not, if it's done its job, if it's affected you in some way, if you come away like Kids, for instance, I hated that movie, but I probably. Had you know, it's probably what they wanted yeah. me to feel. You know, they right. wanted me All right. to. We got them back on. Cool. <laughs> okay, welcome uh, back, Crispin. Thank you for having me back. No problem. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Good. Uh, so, so you had asked me about how I, I specifically don't dictate to the audiences, and yet, yeah, and, but, and, and, and at the same time, have, right, because the director's point of view versus not dictating. Yes. Well. What what is it specifically is uh, constructed in such a way that there is a strong story structure, but uh, the structure is uh, the the elements uh, of the story that are on top of that structure are put forth in a uh, a vocabulary, a syntax of, of 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 of, of filmic expression that is not the usual um, syntax that's that's used in corporately funded and distributed film. It's a it's a uh, a syntax that's been used before. It's not a new syntax, but it's just like I like I say, not the syntax that's normally used or the vocabulary that's normally used in corporately funded and distributed film. Uh, underlying that. Uh, though there is a structure which is, for the most parts, relatively standard in terms of what one deals with in a hero's journey story structure. Because Mm -hmm. of the the way that the the film 
is is told, it leaves a certain amount of elements open for uh, the audience to participate in questioning and thinking about that which has been presented to them. And it's uh, something, like I've said before, I, I feel is very important because I feel that many of the films that are corporately financed and distributed are um, uh, dictating to audiences very specifically I, I, I usually get to, get to this point in a different way when I discuss it, but the, the films that are corporately financed and distributed at this point in time have uh, what I would say they is 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 uh, strictly sitting with within the realm of that which is considered good and evil, wherein anything that can possibly be considered a bad thing, an evil thing, is necessarily pointed to within the structure of the film so that the audiences are dictated to by the filmmakers that the only way to think about this so-called evil thing, this bad thing, would be that it is that, a bad thing. And any other way of thinking about that so-called evil thing is the wrong way to think about it. And that's, right. that's the di dictation that's had. Whereas a film that goes beyond the realm of that which is considered good and evil, there may be this so-called, by the culture, so-called evil thing that sits within it, but it's not necessarily pointed at by the filmmaker so that the audience can uh, think for itself as to what, what it is that, that, that exists within the film, if that is a good thing, if that's an evil thing, or if it is beyond good and evil, and which I think is an interesting concept. It sounds to me you're trying to uh, elicit an authentic emotion from the audience, regardless of whether it's good or bad. You want them to come away from your film thinking and uh, intellectually engaged with your movie, yeah. as opposed to the, the corporate films that come out where everybody just kind of feels the same way, regardless of... of well, and I don't even know that everybody does feel the same way in the, those films. I think a lot of people feel differently. I think I feel mm -hmm. differently than other people feel when they're, they're necessarily going in to see those films. But 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 and and I, and I, I, again this is this film what is it is specifically reacting to uh, the elements that have come forth in the last twenty and thirty years. There have been times when there have been corporately funded and distributed films that have gone beyond the realm of that which is good and evil, and people do think. I, I think Stanley Kubrick is a, a great example of that. Yeah, uh, where he, he films like two thousand one or Clockwork Orange. Were definitely films that were cor corporately financed, corporately distributed through the studio system, and yet went into great realms, well, realms beyond that which is considered good and evil. And that's there's been a, a number of filmmakers that I very specifically was thinking about while making the, this film, and, and he would be one of them, particularly for that reason. Right. Well, can um, for example, uh, Clockwork Orange. I mean, when that came out, I what was that it was X-rated, I think. That's right. Uh, and, and then we, we switched down, we're going to bring something down to NC-17, and that now horror films are made PG-13, so it's almost, they're setting it up that it's almost impossible to do anything in that, beyond well, that what, realm of what, 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 what specifically has happened, it's a long, it's a long uh, 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 journey of rating systems. It started uh, in the silent film era, there were, there were no uh, rating systems, there was no, no national rating system. Uh, the states, each state would have its own jurisdiction as to what was considered okay. And it was a relatively expensive thing for the... Uh, the, the film uh, studios to, to deal with, but because they were silent films, they, they could 
uh, re-edit the films for the various communities, and they did do that. But when sound came into being, they had to... Um, they, it was no longer affordable to recut the film for each state. So what they did was they came up with their own jurisdiction, something called the Hayes Commission. Right. And in 1934, that, that came into being. And there's a drastic difference in the films. You, you see the early sound films, you know, 1929, 30, 31, 32, and 33. And, and the way that elements are dealt with, uh, sexuality, drug use, uh, r racial elements, uh, right. the, the, all the kinds of things yeah. are, are, are actually highly reflective of what the culture was at the time. And you can, you can see quite clearly what the culture in the United States was, or well, all across the world at that time. But uh, if we're specifically talking about the United States, which what is it is very much reacting to, to things in the United States. And although it's worldwide, but very specifically that, then it was that that rating system was the same until the 19 uh, uh, late 50s or 60s, I believe. And then they came up with the G GPRX, which then turned uh, are now G uh, PG 13. Are NC-17, but the NC-17 came into being when the uh, the multiplexes uh, came about, and they were concerned about uh, it, when X rating was around. There were single screens that people would go in to see these films that were specifically for adults, and they weren't concerned about a, a nine-year-old walking down the hall and getting into uh, you know an x-rated film and then when x and then when the multiplexes came into being they had to come up well they they felt they could use this nc17 which wouldn't be tr confused with triple x but there was still this concept or problem understandably that if uh, a nine-year-old walked into the wrong kind of adult film it could they could get sued and right. so what's happened is the the corporations that run the the multiplexes, and I, I don't even think this is wrong, it's just this is how what's happened is that they're concerned about showing films that kids could walk into and they could get in trouble for. And I, 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 I agree with that ultimately. I think there are films like What Is It is, ra is not rated and, and no one under 18 is allowed. It's strictly an adult movie and it's right. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want kids to come in to see the film. Right. It's not for kids. But, but, but what's, what's conversely happened is that because the people need to recoup the money on these wide distribution elements, uh, they can't if they're going to play it in the multiplexes, which is basically what theatrical distribution is at this point in time. And so this means that no films are corporately funded and distributed strictly for adult minds. All films are... Uh, that are corporately funded and distributed are films that have to be viewed by children, which is, that's, that's, that's a very bad thing. Yeah, uh, there, there's nothing that's coming out that's strictly for adults, and that's why as I tour around with these films and I have the question and answer period and I, I perform the live show, which essentially what I'm doing is, is hearkening back to, to, to vaudeville, a uh, hundred years ago, this form of distribution would not be an abnormal form of dis distribution. In fact, it would be the normal form of distribution. But we've we've kind of been taken away from that. But I go to a lot of these 
venues which specifically are um, old venues that are old vaudeville venues that were built a, a long time ago. Sometimes I I play at modern venues. Uh, I actually like playing at the the older vaudeville venues because they they were constructed specifically for live performances. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I should mention that where I'm planning to be, and people can find out where I'm going to be in the next few weeks. I'm going I'm touring a lot in the south. I'm going to, but people can find out specifically where I am at CrispinGlover.com. CrispinGlover.com. Uh, next, uh, this Friday I start, I'll be in St. Louis at the Webster Film Series uh, at Webster University. Then I'm going to be in uh, Great Falls, Michigan. Then I'm going to go down to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And then I'm going to be in Nashville, uh, Memphis and Nashville. But people can get all the details on CrispinGlover.com, and they can also sign up on CrispinGlover.com, and it will email them when I'm going to be touring where with what film, because I'm going to be doing this for many years. It's not it's not the normal form of distribution uh, that you know this comes out at one point and then a few weeks later, months later, it's on DVD. I, I, this is this is a very long term process and. Uh, I'm planning to tour as many places I, as I can go. And also, if people want to want to get me to come into their community, and they know of a good uh, calendar uh, theater, a theater that you know has a calendar that's a single screen theater that brings more unusual films in, and they can get that theater to contact me uh, through my website. There's a, any all of the emails uh, are for specific things, but booking at CrispinGlover.com. Uh, but I'm, I'm committed to coming around and, and touring all, all over the place. But it, it can take me years to do this. So I, right. sometimes the emails take a number of years before I'm able to get back to them because I do this all myself. This is a lifetime commitment. Your, you know, several year commitment you've made to these films. It's incredible. And I, I really yeah, I mean, I'm I'm planning to to make a, a lot of different films, and it depends on uh, what I will do. Things could change in terms of what my distribution are, but um, I could I could have a more uh, standardized type of distribution than 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 I'm doing with these two particular films. But these two two films in particular are particularly what is it are it's really important that I'm there and that I'm having the Q and A sessions with them because uh, because of these taboo elements. People really are not used to the juxtaposition uh, of this. Of, of well, before I'd say juxtaposition, people are not used to even a single element of the, the taboo that's being dealt with in, in in what is it. But there's a number of them, and they're being juxtaposed in such a way that it it can be quite confrontive, and and people have true questions about it, and it's it, it's it really is. I've been touring around with it. I've realized it's very very important that I'm distributing it in this fashion. There's other reasons I'm doing it this way as well, uh, for fi- financial reasons and all all kinds of things. But I've I've realized how important it is to do it this way. And now a word from our sponsor. Have you heard about Anchor? It's the Easiest way to make a podcast. I'm so serious. Super easy. Let me explain. First, it's free. There are creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast from your phone or your computer. Mostly I'd use the computer, but I just did the phone and it was super easy. 
Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And doing that yourself is a pain in the butt, so so happy they do it for me. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need, all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now, let's get creative. Have you ever ever had a negative reaction to the film uh, from some an audience member that maybe you had to clear something up? <laughs> oh, well, well, well the, this is the reason, a, a huge part of the reason that I have the question and answer sessions. It, it depends on the mood and the mode of the, the questions in the, the audience, but uh, yes, I can get very, very aggressive questions from the audience. Uh, it isn't, it, it, my, my feeling is, is that a majority of the people that are watching the film don't get these kind of aggressive type questions in their head, mm-hmm. but there are people there that do, and it's it's. I don't shy away from those questions. Uh, sometimes I'll get you know a number of nights in a row or, or or cities in a row that I I don't get aggressive questioning, and then I'll kind of think, well, I wonder if the film has. It, there's something changed in the culture, or or there's been enough talk about the film, and maybe maybe I won't get that kind of questioning, and I'll kind of think, well, I, maybe that's not good, and then I'll start getting a whole bunch of very aggressive questioning, <laughs> and then I won't get any of the kind of what I call easier questions, and uh, and then I'll kind of think, oh gosh, I wish I could just get some easier questions. <laughs> but, but I mean, when I get the more aggressive questioning, I, I do focus on them because. The film really is a film to um, to to, ha- to cause discussion and and have people think about things. And uh, I didn't speak as much about the the second film because most of these shows I'm playing, uh, I'll be I'll only be showing part one. I it's at the Webster Film uh, series where I'm going to in St. Louis where I'll show both of the films because I've already been there. I specifically show part one the first time I go to a city, and then I come back uh, with, with part two. Because I've, now, I've invested in these films myself, or rather I finance them myself, and uh, I need to give them proper separate uh, uh, showings so people really take, take the time to notice that it isn't just, just me coming to their city with a film and, oh, we'll just go see this. It's important that they're, there really is a separate kind of thought process about both of the films. You know, you have said that uh, It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine is, is probably the best movie you'll ever make. Uh, but when you read the script originally well, in 86... What, what I actually, specifically what I always said is uh, It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine will be the best film of the trilogy, and not only that, it will probably be the best film I'll ever have anything to do with in my whole career. Okay. I, I, I worded fairly specifically that way. But, uh, but all right, yeah, all right. you're, that, that's accurate what you're saying in any case. So, you, but you read it originally like over 20 years ago. What, how, no, how different I didn't you write Everything is Fine. Uh, everything no, is no, fine. You, re- you read it. You read it. It was Stephen... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, wrote it, I read it in 1987. Yes, that's correct. But uh, how different, if you actually had the chance in 86 and the financing and everything to make it, how diff- like the, uh, what would the film be different artistically well, with a ni- 1986 At the time that I, I read it, I was, I was working on another movie that I started making uh, based on one of my books that I, show in my, uh, that I perform in my show uh, called The Backward Swing. 
and I was shooting this on video. It's actually the next thing I'm going to edit together. I, I didn't finish that film first because... Or, or because it wasn't shot on film, it was shot on on video. But it's the, there's really neat stuff in that, and I'm looking forward to editing that together next. But um, it, it was when I was working on that, the, I, w- I co-directed that, and uh, the I was working with somebody that had uh, had shown me the screenplay. Now, at the, as soon as I read this screenplay. Uh, I knew that I had to produce this film, and um, David Brothers is the person that uh, I co-directed Everything Is Fine with, and he had shown me this screenplay, and I, we discussed at the time uh, about it. We could have shot it all the way back then on video. Uh, I knew I had to finance the film. I just, be, again, it's an that film also deals in, in taboo subject matter, and it was just very evident from what I read that this would be a great film, but it wasn't something that people would normally want to finance. And mm-hmm. so I, um, I, we, it, it, you have to see the film in a way, but one of the things that it was very specific about it, it was... It was written, Stephen C. Stewart was a, a man of normal intelligence, but he had been locked in this nursing home for about 10 years. Oh, and there man. was a certain naivete with the way that he had, had uh, written it that was really beautiful, that uh, there were emotional elements that were quite specific and true, that, that, that sh- shone through because of this naive way in which he had had written it. Uh, But we knew that it was very important to make certain that the film itself didn't feel naive, that it felt like a corporately funded and distributed film, but with this true point of view of this person. We wanted to make sure that by the time we got to it, that we, we we could shoot it on film and that it would look like the kind of movie that he he had he had written. Even though it's written in a naive fashion, there's an elegance to it that demanded to uh, look like I keep describing a corporately funded and distributed film. And so we wanted to support that and make it as beautiful and have the best uh, uh, actors and actresses. Uh, and and set design that we could have for it, and the whole film is shot on sets, uh, which which David Brothers built and designed, and uh, everything is shot on the sets except for the very opening and the end, which was shot on a location in a nursing home that we found, and it was a coincidence that we found out when we got on the day of the set. It was the very nursing home that that Steve had been locked into, and that footage is some of the most powerful footage in the whole film and uh you can just feel when you're watching that this is not a place somebody should have been been locked into for a a, a great portion of their lives especially at the time of life that he was in right now your father uh actor bruce glover is in it is fine is this the first time you've worked with your father uh, yes, uh, it, it was, and you know. Now, even that film I shot a number of years ago. We shot that film in 2001. In fact, the money that I made from the first uh, Charlie's Angels film went straight into uh, uh, making uh, the Stephen C. Stewart film. 
Uh, I and I'm very interested in working with my father again. Actually, I have a another film that I, I want to make uh, that might be the next film that I I make, and uh, that would be something where he and I would actually uh, work together. We've never acted. We've never acted together, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which uh, I would like to do. Yeah, that would be one. Now, you just recently played the role of Grendel in Beowulf. Was that also to fund? Um, a future project as well, and how was well, that? All, all of the films that I'm acting in at this point, I've just I've changed ever since I I uh, funded the, that film. Everything is fine with the, the film with the money that I made from from Charlie's Angels, the first Charlie's Angels film. Uh, I switched the way that I was thinking about uh, what kinds of films I, I should act in. Uh, so essentially, since that film, that that is how I am uh, choosing to act in movies. But that being said, it was actually a very good thing for 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 this to happen because when when before before I acted in Charlie's Angels, um, I mean I, I started acting professionally when I was 14 years old. So when I was a when I was a teenager at that that point, you know, I I didn't necessarily have huge aspirations. I mean, I did. I was pretty career minded. I did feel like, okay, this is something I can I can do, and I I came into the decision about doing it for for that reason. It was something I felt like I could do. And my father, being an actor, I'd I'd, I'd grown up, and my mother was a dancer and retired uh, actress. She retired when I was born. So I'd, I'd grown up knowing that the industry, and it was something pragmatically I knew I could do. Uh, but you know, when I was 14, I thought maybe it would be neat to be in a television commercial or be on a television show. And I did do some television and uh, work when I was a teenager. Uh, then I started really wanting to focus on on films and. Uh, but I, I was acting in anything I could just to get my, my uh, just to, to act and work and, and have my career uh, go forward. Uh, and then when Back to the Future came out, uh, which I did when I was 20, uh, it became very apparent that, or to me, because of the success of that film, I, I, I felt a certain obligation to finding films that would in some way uh, reflect my own psychological uh, uh, interests. And, and uh, the first film that I acted in after Back to the Future had, had come out, uh, had been released, was, uh, was River's Edge, which is still a film I'm quite proud of. But mm-hmm. subsequent to that, most of the films that I acted in did not necessarily really reflect what my true psychological interests were and they did not necessarily make that much money and that was not necessarily that good for my acting career so what was interesting was when i had already put steve into what is it uh, in order to uh, make his film into a, a sequel of of what is it by by putting him as a character in part one it right. wasn't the original concept of the film but I realized that there were thematic elements that were related and I could use it commercially and it would all make a certain kind of sense. But in the year 2001, Steve Stewart was older and although cerebral palsy is not degenerative, he was 62 and he started choking on his own saliva and one of his 
uh, he got pneumonia and one of his lungs collapsed. And it became apparent if we didn't shoot something soon, we may never get to shoot anything at all. And I, I knew, I realized when the first Charlie's Angels film started coming to me that I could, I could utilize that money to put it straight into making the Stephen C. Stewart film. That's exactly what I did. We shot that film over a period of six months uh, in three smaller uh, productions and uh, right after I finished acting in, in Charlie's Angels. And then within a month after he finished shooting the, the film, Stephen C. Stewart died. So it, it, was very, it was a very good thing that we shot that, and I'm, I'm greatly relieved to finally be touring and traveling with the film because, like I've, I've said, I, I'm, I am so genuinely very passionate about the movie. But what, what was interesting that happened career-wise for me was after Charlie's came out, Charlie's Angels came out. This was a film that was also quite um, financially successful, and that was very good for my acting career. And I started getting very interesting roles like Willard, and consequently mm -hmm. things like uh, a Beowulf playing Grendel. And Beowulf was actually a great. Uh, uh, working experience, and I, I like the character that I played, and I'm, I'm very happy with my performance. And, uh, and I was paid well in that film, and those things have gone into uh, f financing what I'm my, my own projects. One of the main things I'm doing is I bought property in the Czech Republic, and I'm making a um, it's an historic piece of property that was built in the 1600s, and I'm making a, uh, a horse stables that's next to it into a small soundstage, so I can continue shooting my own projects over there wow wow so so if you were offered the part as of the riddler in the next batman movie would you accept accept that i mean oh well, yeah i mean i mean i mean i mean you know the yeah, people of course ask me about that one a lot there's been a lot of people on the internet saying things about that which all was all that has been internet based it was never anything that uh came through the studio system or anything like i was mm -hmm. never ever in a contention for the role or anything like that but uh uh of of course i mean uh, i uh working in studio films is uh i have i have really two different quotes one is for the so called independent film market which is a much smaller uh, uh quote because the the film budgets are much lower and you can't go too high in those because you would they wouldn't be able to make the film if you took too much but 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 when i make a uh, uh, an, a studio film, uh, I have a much higher quote, and that that's the kind of thing that truly can finance uh, a film that I can make quite readily. But I, 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 um, I'm continuing to try to figure out how to lower my costs, and I'm buying certain kinds of equipment and doing things so I can keep making high-quality, high-production-value movies uh, that I can recoup m more readily than these first two films, which are relatively expensive. I mean, what does it cost? 150 to 200 thousand dollars to get to the point of a 35 millimeter print, and uh, everything is fine. Cost approximately 200 thousand to get to the 35 millimeter print, which for a, a feature film is is a very low budget, but for me, it's uh, a lot of money. And uh, the way that I'm recouping is by going and touring with the films. Um, I, the, the, my, my deal with the, uh, the, the theaters is I usually do a 50-50 split on what they normally charge for the box office. 
So if it's in, you know, $8 to see the movie, I get four and they get four. But for what I charge for performing the slideshow, I take 100% of that. Uh, so really, it's not, not recouping on the, the, the film as much it is, as it is uh, on performing the slideshow. And then I also have the book signings, which the, the books that I uh, publish and, and manufacture, uh, I, 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 of course, take the, the money for that as well. It's interesting. It's almost, almost as if you're like a, uh, your day job is a studio film. You go, you do your craft, and you get the <laughs> money. And, and like an independent filmmaker would do it to go to their day job and then go do what they're passionate yeah. about it. You yeah, know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. and yet at the same time, I'm also, what, what this has done by, by making this so important to me is it's actually given me a, a, a very strong motive uh, to go in and, 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 and have a very good attitude about this, as you, you're calling a day job. And I, I, I do like going in and, and uh, working on, on these uh, corporately funded and distributed films, and I don't have a, a bad attitude about it or anything like that. I go in and want to do the best job and help the filmmakers uh, get what they want to get across, and for the most part, you know these these uh, the reason they've hired me is because they want something interesting and something that I I like, and usually something interesting does come out of it. And if for some reason uh, it 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 doesn't, then I can console myself with uh, that uh, the money that I'm making can go into something one of my own film projects that I'm very passionate about. But I mean. There are films every once in a while that will come along that even if it it um, uh, does meet my my quote, if I can't make it work, if there's something that I feel like I just wouldn't be able to in any way in my imagination make it work, then I, w- I wouldn't do the film. But if I feel like on some level I can make it work somehow, then and and it meets my quote, then I will uh, attempt to to, to do it. I think it's really great how subversive it is that you go and you work for the corporately funded films and you take their money and make your own art with it. I think it's a well, and and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really against corporate funding. If I was, if I was able to make the films uh, that I wanted to make with corporate funding, I would and and distribution, I would love it. I, I have mm-hmm. nothing against it. And like I said early on. Uh, that's one of the reasons I admire Stanley Kubrick, and I, I think these things are are possible. But but it's not it isn't my main main focus. Uh, but but yes, what I am reacting to are these these constraints that have happened that I do think are damaging. Yeah. Do, do you think we can ever get back? I was going to say, what's your favorite Kubrick film? Uh, I I don't have a single favorite, but my favorites would be um, uh, The Killing. Uh, uh, Doctor Strange, Love, Two Thousand and One, uh, Clockwork Orange, and Barry Lyndon. Mm, yeah, I, I love all all of those films. I love them. I would add Pants of Glory. I love uh, Pants of Glory is another one I love. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and and even even the the films that I don't put in the in that uh, category are you know by far better than most. Most filmmakers' yeah. best films. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's, he's a pretty amazing uh, filmmaker, no question. Who who else do you admire? Uh, well, I admire a lot of filmmakers, but there were four four filmmakers that I was very specifically thinking about while I was uh, working on on what is it. Uh, there would be um, well, we talked about Kubrick. There would be Louis Spoonwell. Mm-hmm. There would be um, there would be. Uh, 
uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder and, mm-hmm. and Werner Herzog. Yeah, and those four filmmakers, there was very much thinking about specific things having to do with, with each of them uh, while I was working on the film. But um, there, I, there, I'm sure there are other filmmakers, uh, I mean, that, that had, had influence and, and were helpful. Like, uh, like uh, you know, I, I know uh, Werner Herzog uh, a bit as well now, and he's been very supportive and great. And then David Lynch, of course, was mm-hmm. very supportive early on by uh, saying he would executive produce uh, It Is Mine, which eventually will become part three. I don't know if, if by the time I get to it, if he, he still would be the executive producer, but I'm quite right. grateful to him for the fact that he was supportive uh, so early on. He's another one who's uh, bucking the system and, and just going on yeah. and doing everything and, himself. And so I, can, I can see exactly... It's it's different from what I'm doing in certain. There are certain business elements that are different from what I'm doing, but on some levels, it's very similar to what I'm doing. Yeah, he's he's even you know when doing the Oscar promotion for his last film, he sat on the corner with the cow and the and the the, the sandwich board, you know, promoting uh promoting his film. And I mean, that's no more DIY than that. You know, it's just that's that's pretty awesome. Well, he, his his uh, form of distribution was a more more in lines with what a standardized uh, distribution is, but it ultimately was his own uh, distribution yeah. means, which is is very admirable. It's uh, it's it's the, the 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 big difference from what what I'm doing is, of course, that I'm involving the live uh, promotional element, and I'm taking a very 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 long time to distribute, not going out to to DVD. Right. Uh, but he he did very well, I understand, with uh, with his uh, uh, distribution uh, model that he, he used, and it's uh, it's something I'm I'm interested in. It's like I I I, I did not grow up a businessman. I, I have learned business really primarily from my my books that I, I started publishing in the 80s, mm-hmm. and I I'm slowly learning about the business elements, but. That's an extremely important part of uh, of the whole thing because film is a very expensive medium, and one has to be able to recoup on, especially if you're if you're if you're um, funding them yourself. One has to recoup in order right. to continue making more, and that's why right, I'm right. quite diligent about this. All right. Well, we're actually out of time. Oh, okay. This show is over. But uh, oh, thank you so much for you calling too. in. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, let me know. We'll, I'll, I'll be happy to come back on again at some point in the future. That would be great. And we, we need to get you in the area. We're in the East Coast here, uh, you know, Northeast. And great. I'd li- really like to see your presentation, your, your Yeah, your yeah. Performance. Well, well if, you, if you have some immediate venues in your area, have them contact me. Okay. And we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll figure stuff out because I've played some in the Northeast, but I'm glad to come up and do some more. How, how mean, large it's, it's, of a venue uh, do you need? That's well, my my perfect venue site is size is three hundred uh, three hundred seat theater, but okay. but it can be larger or smaller. It's uh, you know what, I want to get the there's a theater right in my town, the Newtown Theater. It's that's oldest, what I was thinking, Ralph. The oldest theater okay. in the United States. Yeah, right. uh, it's one one screen. It's got a balcony. It's got a stage. It's beautiful. It's beautiful that's theater. Fantastic. Yeah, a thirty five millimeter venue, and uh, yeah, ha- have them contact me at booking at crispinglover dot com. That would be fantastic. Oh, I will do that. Okay. All right. Well, great great to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure. I appreciate it. Have a great night. You too. Good night. Okay, thanks. Bye. Good night. Bye.